Hark the Herald Angels Sing, the fourth verse goes like this. Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. Adam's likeness now efface. Stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above. Reinstate us in thy love. Hark the herald, angel sings, glory to the newborn king. Responsibility brings accountability. Every responsibility is a privilege, and every privilege a responsibility. We must never let our theology rob us of our responsibility. The power to choose. Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 3? I know that Genesis might not seem to be the place to turn when we think about Christmas, and if you're here this morning to hear a Christmas story, we will get to the Christmas story, but I'd like to suggest to you that the Christmas story really began in Genesis chapter 3. Daniel Webster has said that the most important thought I ever had was that of my individual responsibilities to God. Adam and Eve were placed in the garden, and they lived in a perfect environment with no sin. But God created them in his image, and that image gave them the freedom to choose. And we know the story. We are a result of that decision that Adam made in the garden when he chose he chose to disobey. And when he chose with his eyes wide open, Eve was deceived. But Adam did that state and that step of disobedience with his eyes wide open. God held him accountable. And in Genesis chapter 3, we have the results of that decision. The fall of man is what's on the page of Genesis 3 for me. The cursings are passed down to the woman, the cursing is passed down to the man, and then the cursing is passed down to Lucifer, to the devil. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we believe we have here the very first biblical account, the promise of a coming Messiah. Here's what God says to the serpent, verse 14 of chapter 3. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Notice the next phrase, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. We believe that this verse is the promise, the first promise of the one who would come as the Messiah. And from this day forth, humanity was looking for that one that was promised here in the garden by way of the curse that God gave Adam, Eve, and the serpent. There's some fun in thinking about and wondering what it was like when Adam and Eve chose to
to disobey, and the results of that decision was phenomenal. And here we are. And here we are. Look at us. Offspring of Adam and Eve. And we're paying the consequences and the results of not only the first step of disobedience, but of our own disobedience. And so the results of sin have ramifications for the choices that we make. I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, where we will spend some time this morning in the Christmas story. I want to thank uh, Scott and Jess for putting together this skit of, of really some really powerful lines that, that we heard from them, that obedience is a strong issue for us. And I'd like to suggest that you and I, over these next 15 to 20 minutes, consider what kind of choices are you making in your life? What are you choosing right now in your own personal life that you can say, yes, this is a good choice, or no, this is a bad choice? Because we have choices every day. Every day we make hundreds, maybe thousands of choices about what we're going to do with our time, with our money, with our families, with the resources that God gives us. We make choices every day. I'd like to suggest to you that Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, gives us a nice comparison between King Herod and the wise men and how they chose and the results of their choice. And so we find here in Matthew chapter 2 the Christmas story that many of us are familiar with. In chapter 2, verse 1, the Bible says, and after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, I want you to notice that in verse 1, what's going to follow happened after the birth of Jesus. Jesus was born in this manger scene, but most of the Christmas story that we celebrate, the wise men that come probably didn't come to a manger scene. Because we find here in, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, that it was after the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem that these events took place. In fact, I'm going to suggest that there was probably about a two-year period that we're talking about the Christmas story that we read here in Matthew chapter 2. We're going to find that there's probably some time between the actual birth of Jesus and when they left Bethlehem, that is Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. For example, we see here that Herod was going to kill all the babies two years of, of age and younger. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. Once he finds out that this baby was born in this area that he was ruling, he decides to kill all of the babies that were two years of age and younger. Chapter 2, verse 16. It says, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and younger. Notice also that when the wise men do come to the scene of Jesus in chapter 2, verse 11, that they don't come to the manger scene, they come rather to a house. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. When they saw the star, that is, the wise men, these men that come, these magi, they were overjoyed on coming to the house. So Mary, Joseph, and Jesus are not in the manger scene. 
they are most likely living in a house within the time of birth and probably about two years of age that Jesus was. He was born in Bethlehem in Judea. The town of Bethlehem is a very small town about five miles south of Jerusalem. If you and I were to walk from this building to the south side of Holland, maybe go to 32nd Street on the south side or 40th Street, we would have about four to five miles approximately in our walk. That's about how far it is from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. When I was there, I had the privilege of walking from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. I went the other direction, and it took me a couple of hours with one of my friends when we were there back in the 70s. It's not a very long walk, but it was about five miles from Jerusalem. It was in the town here that King David was born. King David, we remember from last week, David was the king who from his loins would come a king. And King David lived about a thousand years before Jesus comes on the scene. Here, this king, this Messiah, comes to us in the city of Bethlehem. In fact, we're told in this passage in verse 6 that this is a prophecy of Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. And we saw last week that in the book of Matthew, we find over and over and over again the book of Matthew proclaiming Jesus Christ as the king, the king of the Jews. Jesus Christ fulfills all of the Old Testament scriptures that talked about his coming. Many of these have been fulfilled in his first coming. But friends, can I suggest to you that there is a host of Old Testament scriptures that have not yet been fulfilled. Because Jesus Christ, when he would come, the Jews only saw him coming as one coming. They didn't realize that his coming would be two comings. And they only saw one coming. So when they saw Jesus come, they had an idea and a thought of who this Messiah would be. And it surely didn't line up with what they saw in the Old Testament scriptures. But they missed a lot of the Old Testament scriptures, like Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And they didn't see that his coming would be two comings. The first time to come to lay his life down on our behalf outside of the city of Jerusalem. The second time that he comes, he will come on a white horse and he will come to establish the kingdom that the Jews have been looking for for centuries. That kingdom will also have an effect on all of the nations. The Abrahamic covenant of 2,000 years before Christ, that Abrahamic covenant was one that said, Abraham, through your seed, you will bless all of the other nations. And the world has been pulsating with anticipation of the coming Messiah. And here he comes in Matthew chapter 2. This is the setting then, my friends, of the incarnation. Look how Herod responds to his coming. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Jesus was born, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked. I want you to notice that King Herod, this is his time. This is his time. He lived to be around 69 years old. We all have a time. We have a time of beginning when we're born in a time of end, and that time is very short. 
in the scheme of human history. 60, 70, maybe 80 years, if at best. This was Herod's time. History marches forward with us involved in our time. This is our time. This is your time. This is your opportunity. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? King Herod, this was his moment. The work of God was actively at work through Herod's life. And Herod, here Herod was. He was the ruler of his territory. And there was an invasion of another king. And he became disturbed. This was his time. What was he going to do? We're told in the scriptures that there was before this time in history of the Jewish nation a queen called Esther who used this phrase, and I'd like you to keep your fingers here in Matthew chapter 2 and turn back with me to the book of Esther. And this is an amazing statement that we find the book of Esther saying in her time. This is what Queen Esther said in her day. There was this great beauty contest that Esther was a part of. And she won the beauty queen contest. She became the queen of the Persian and Medes empire. And her life as a Jew, the king didn't know that she was a Jew. But had he known, and as the story unfolds, her life was at stake. Here's what she says in Esther chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. When Esther's, verse 12, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, and Mordecai is her cousin, he sent back this message. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent, Esther, at this time, Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to the royal position for such a time as this. What a powerful statement that Esther has. She is reminded through Mordecai that this is your time. What are you going to do with it? And she says, later on in this text, I will be obedient to God even if it means my life. If I perish, I perish. But I'm willing to choose to do what's right no matter what the consequences, even if my life is at stake, I'm willing to lay my life down for obedience's sake. Herod missed the opportunity in his time. How about you and I? We go back to Matthew chapter 2 and we find a second characteristic about Herod. This was his moment, but secondly, we're told here in verse 3 that when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. He was a disturbed little man. The word for disturbed here in the Greek is an interesting word. It means to shake together or to stir up or to throw into confusion. 
Have you ever been in a situation where you've been confused and your mind can't think clearly and so your mind is stirred up with thoughts and you can't think clearly? Herod was a disturbed little man because there was this king that was coming into his kingdom. He was jealous. He was a king and no one else belonged in his kingdom. I'm in charge. This is my kingdom. This is my turf. Uh, he was a wealthy man. In fact, Bible, or at least the history books, tell us that Herod, he did some wonderful things with the wealth and with the smarts that he had. He did some wonderful building projects, one of them being the temple in Jerusalem. He was a wealthy man. He was a gifted man. He was a loyal man to Rome. He was an excellent administrator. He was clever. He was passionate, all of those things together, but he was paranoid. The history books tell us that he eventually would kill his wife, Miriam. He would also kill his own two sons, Alexander and uh, Aristobulus, and others of his cabinet. Notice here that the scriptures tell us that Jesus doesn't become a king. He is a king. Look at verse uh, 2. They're asking the wise men, these magi, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. He's already a king. Jesus is. But Herod is threatened by this king that comes. Are we threatened by the invasion of Jesus into our life? How do we respond when our kingdom is invaded? Because this is my turf. <laughs> this is Gary's world. This is your world. <laughs> and when people come in, what do they see in your kingdom? Your king. Your queen of your kingdom. That's what sin does for us. We're now rulers. <laughs> this is us. And when Jesus comes into our kingdom, how do we respond to that invasion? Look at a third characteristic that we find about Herod. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. The Bible tells us that Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them, verse 7, exactly when the star had appeared. And then verse 8, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search of the child. As soon as you find him, report it to me so that, oh, that I may too also go and worship him. Herod, I would suggest to you, he is a religious fake. He's a religious fake. He said he wanted to go and worship this king. But we know the intent of his heart, because we already read in chapter 2 later on, that because of the fierceness of his own heart, he's deceived by these magi, that he turns against the two-year-olds and younger, and we know what his intent was. He didn't want to go and worship this king. He wanted to try and destroy him. Herod was threatened. Herod was arrogant. Herod was self-absorbed. He was self-willed. He was jealous, paranoid, scared, a disturbed little man, attempting to act big and powerful. What a fool. What a fool. 
And now we contrast the fool with these wise magi. Notice in chapter 2, verse 2, that these wise men or magi from the east, they come and they are searching. They come searching for the child. There might have been that these three or four or five or ten or twenty, I'm going to suggest that this was more than three, that these people that came from the east most likely came from the area of Babylon or the Persia Medes area where the Jews, when they were carried off into captivity, there was a good-sized group of Jews that settled in Babylon that didn't come home when they returned back to the land. And there was a good settlement of Jews that were there, and these wise men possibly could be, and we don't know for sure, but they come from the east, and there's something about these men that they are searching They are looking for him. How's your search today? Are you looking for truth in your life? Are you looking for meaning and purpose in life? Are you on a search for something this morning? Does your soul ache for something more? Nine to five, nine to five. Nine to five, nine to five. And Adam's looking for a a new nine to five job. Is there more? We search for meaning and purpose in life. These wise men are coming, looking. I wonder if these wise men, and let's keep our finger here in Matthew chapter two and turn back to Numbers chapter 24. Go back all the way to Numbers. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. It's the fourth book in the Old Testament scriptures. Numbers chapter 24. It's an interesting story here in the Old Testament of Balaam, who is a Gentile prophet. (laughs) And the king at this time, the king of this area, Balak is the king, and he asked this prophet, Gentile prophet, to make a curse upon the people of Israel that are coming out of Egypt and they're going to the promised land. And so Balak asks this request of Balaam, who's the prophet, and Balaam makes three statements of blessing, not cursing. And Balak gets upset with him and says, why don't you curse these people? Let's not bless them, curse them. Look at what he says in chapter 24, verse 15. Here's the fourth oracle that Balaam gives, and this is what he says to the people of Israel. Then he uttered this oracle, the oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of the one whose eye sees clearly, the oracle of the one who hears the words of God, who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate and whose eyes are opened. Verse 17, I see him. But not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of the sons of Sheth. Edom will be conquered. Seir, his enemy, will be conquered. But Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors 
of this city? Could it be that these magis from the east knew the Old Testament scriptures that a star would come and this star would be connected with his coming and here they come searching for the child because they knew the scriptures of the Old Testament. They're on a search for truth. I want you to notice the second characteristic about these wise men, these magi. Look at chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. After they had heard the king, that is King Herod, they went on their way and the star that they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. They were led, these wise men were led by divine intervention. This star, we don't know what it was. It was something in the sky that got their attention. And this star somehow led them and it brought them to Jerusalem and then it turned a direct south and it went south to Bethlehem. It looks like this star went right over the place where they were living in the house. And so it led them this whole way. It's interesting that the history books tell us that in the Roman year 747, which would be 7 BC, there occurred a conjunction of the planets Jupiter and Saturn in the constellation of Pisces. It appeared in May, October, and November of 7 BC. Was this possibly what they saw? Another theory, Kepler, who died in 1630, suggested that this was a supernova. And if you know anything about star study, a supernova is a giant star that violently explodes and it gives us off enormous amounts of light for sometimes weeks and even sometimes months. Kepler believed that it was one of these. We don't know for sure. Others have suggested that it was a comet. The history books tell us that Halley's Comet passed overhead in this area of the earth about 12 B.C. Whatever the star was, the point is that this star led these men to the place of Judea, the place of Bethlehem, and they saw the place, not in the manger, but the place in the home where Mary, Joseph, and the baby were there. And then what do they do? The third characteristic that I find here, these wise men, look at chapter 2, verse 11. What did these wise men do? On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him, and they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, of incense, and of myrrh. And most of us, we believe, or at least people believe, that there were three wise men because there are three gifts here. The text doesn't tell us that. It just says that they brought these gifts. These gifts were very expensive, expensive gifts. In fact, probably these gifts were used for Mary and Joseph and the baby because when they flee from this place, God leads them down to Egypt and they will stay there in Egypt for a number of years. We don't know how long. What did Mary and Joseph use to take care of the baby? These gifts possibly could have been used to care for the needs that they needed to feed themselves and also for Joseph to probably do his carpentry work down in Egypt. But what did they do? They brought gifts. And they brought gifts to the Lord Jesus. What do you bring to Christ this year in Christmas? Have you included Christ on your Christmas list? 
Have you ever thought about this? We give gifts to the people that we love. And we try and demonstrate to them by way of our gifts, not just with these gifts, but we want to show an expression of our appreciation and love to them. What is it that we bring to our God this year? What is it that God would be pleased with? Again, I want to share with you some Old Testament scriptures. If you'll turn back to Isaiah chapter 1, I want you to see here in Isaiah chapter 1 what God said to the people of Israel when it came to gifts. He was very pointed. He was tired of their gatherings. He was tired of their meetings when they came together, and he was very pointed in Isaiah's day when he said to them in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and convocations, all these celebrations that you do, I can't bear your evil assemblies anymore. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates them. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong and learn to do what is right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us reason together says the Lord, though your sins are many, though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. God says to the people of Israel here, I don't like your offerings. Bring righteousness. Bring justice. Bring, as he says, stop doing wrong and do good. How do you interpret that in your life? What does that look like for you? Young person, teenager, college student. What does that look like for you? Middle-aged, grandparent, grandson, whatever age you are, what offering do you bring to God today? The Bible tells us in 1 Samuel chapter 15, it's a wonderful passage of Scripture where God says, through Samuel... Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Can I ask you some pointed questions by way of the Spirit of God this morning to get into your territory and into your turf and into your kingdom. Will you allow God to come into your kingdom and allow him to rule in every area of your life? Because that's what he wants. He wants every area of your life. He doesn't just want Sunday morning between 10.45 and 12 noon. It would be so easy if we could just give him this time and say, 
I've done my time. And then we leave here and we go off and we do what's contrary to what his heart says. And if we do, I think he says the words of Isaiah, I'm tired of your meetings. Don't even come together if you're going to do that. I want you to obey me, he says, in every area of your life. When I came into the kingdom of your world, I wanted all of you. And maybe we respond like Herod. I see some of my heart responding on the page next to Herod, and I see some of my heart responding to the wise men, the magi, and sometimes my choices of doing right and doing wrong. God says, follow me. Here's the choice. Here's the choice. Today, I give you life and death. I give you life, which is Christ, and I give you death, which is our way of doing it, my interpretation, my agenda, my kingdom, or his. Choose this day, life or death. And that, my friend, is the Christmas story. I know it's heavy when we start talking about doing things outside of what we typically think are the religious parts of our life, when we start talking about how we drive and how we walk and how we talk and how we think and what we say and what we do, and all of those things become very personal. That's my turf, is what I say. And God says, I love you too much to let you rule your kingdom. Will you let my son be your king? And so this morning I ask you, as we think about Christmas, what gift will you give your Savior? Do you know him as your personal Savior? The first step is believing that Christ died for you and saying, yes, I believe that he paid the penalty for my sins. The cross is why he came. He was born to die. But then what he wants is he wants much more than that. He wants to not only be our Savior, he wants to be our Lord. Every area of our life. Would you be willing this morning to give that area of your life that you've been saying, you know, Lord, I've been wanting to give it to you, but I've just been putting it off today. In this moment, I would suggest that we say to one another, let's lay our lives afresh. And here it is, Lord. I'm scared. I don't know what you're going to do. I'm not sure what you're going to replace by taking this out of my life. Here's the thing. When he takes something out of your life, he's always going to put something good in. Trust him with that. So don't be afraid to let go of what you might be holding on. I've got my, my career in place. It's all in and I've got that holding tight. I know exactly where I'm going. Would you let it go this morning? And just open yourself up and say, God, here I am. I'm willing to be used of you. And just watch and see what he does. Would you bow your heads and your hearts with me as we close this morning? Choose for yourself life today, my friend. Choose this day whom you will serve. Will you serve yourself Others, or will you serve Christ? Let's follow the wise men's example. Father, give us an openness to you that will allow this Christmas season to be a time when you invade our space and you become all that you claim to be for our soul's sake. For God, we are so desperately in need of you.
And so, Father, this morning, the decisions that are being made here this morning, some decisions are being made for salvation. You haven't come to Christ yet. You haven't believed in Christ. If that's your desire this morning, a simple prayer, yes, I believe that Christ died for my sins, and I acknowledge that he's my Savior. I embrace him as my Lord and Savior this morning. Father, if that's the prayer of any heart, any soul here, man, woman, boy, or girl, I pray that you might confirm in their heart that they're your, ch your child this morning. And then, Father, for many of us that have taken that step, would you continue that good work that you're doing of transforming us into the image of Christ? Help us, Father, in our unbelief to let go of the things that we're holding on to because we think it's our turf, it's our kingdom. And in reality, Father, it belongs to you. So guide us, Father, direct us, pull out the things that need to be pulled out, and we look forward to what you're going to do in the days to come. We ask this, Father, in the precious name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.